Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. Thank you for tuning in. A few years ago, I was at Newport Folk Festival, and Graham Nash mentioned his partner, Amy. For whatever reason at the time, I looked her up on Instagram and have been following her ever since. She's been very public about her depression, breast cancer, and her dedication to women's rights. I'm honored to have the amazing Amy Grantham on the podcast today. Welcome, Amy. Hi. So happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you live, what you do, all that good stuff. Okay. Uh, I'm an artist and I live and work in New York City. Right now, my work has been primarily politically focused, obviously. Also, I've been focusing on my photography a lot lately. I'm also a writer. What kind of photography? I do a lot of street photography in New York. I do lots of just candid snaps whenever I'm on the road. Um, What I like the most of my work are self-portraits that I do, obviously because I'm with myself more than anyone. And it's not that I find myself incredibly fascinating. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's a good way for me to kind of show how I see myself in different environments and how I feel in a moment. Love that. And writing-wise, what are you writing or what have you written? Well, I just started, I think, like 30 years late, a blog. Okay. <laughs> I feel like so I'm you had a blog prior, which we'll get to. I did have a blog prior. That's true. Um, this one is just, I only have two entries so far, but it's just longer pieces because I found myself more and more on social media trying to write more about my thoughts, which it's not really conducive to all the time. Uh, so I needed a way that I could get more of my thoughts and feelings out there. And it seems like a full on essay or blog piece is the best way to go about it right now. Love that. And we'll be sure to include that in the show notes for the podcast. Cool. So let's get right to it. Why we're here talking about invisible illness. You've talked a bit about your experience with depression. Tell us a bit about your journey with that. Okay. Uh, Fun stuff. I know. (laughs) And we laughed. I I always say that depression is just something that I've had. It's like one of my earliest memories, basically. It's just something I think I've experienced for most of my life on and off. You know, I'm at a point now where I'm familiar enough with it that I can see kind of like the signs of when it's probably going to be starting. Uh, sometimes I can tell if it's going to be a particularly lengthy episode with it or not. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, honestly, it's just kind of part of who I am, really. When you say lengthy episode, what does that look like? And what kind of things trigger that? Different things can trigger it. Uh, but a lengthy episode, you know, like I had a bad I guess, time or episode towards the end of last year that was just triggered by some personal things that I was going through that were very difficult for me. And that one lasted like five weeks or so. So sometimes it could be like a couple weeks, sometimes it's a couple months. um, And it's just a matter of finding a way to not want to rush what's happening because there's nothing I can really do to control the length of time that this lasts, uh, but to just go easy on myself in those moments and just know that at some point it inevitably will end and kind of lift and just to be strong. And what is it? It's the depression. It's whatever feelings uh, come up surrounding it. Normally, it's a kind of like disassociation. It's feeling like, in a weird way, and I know we'll get to this later, but it's a lot like what I felt when I was going through treatment for cancer, where I remember distinctly going outside and, you know, I live in the East Village, there's all these people and life around, and I felt like I was actually in my own little bubble, and that there's all these people around me living and happy and talking, and it's like everything is muted, and I'm physically in an environment, but emotionally, mentally, I just feel completely removed from my surroundings. It's very hard to connect with people during those times. I always write about this stuff, like in journals, but uh, I found some from from last year where it's just like, you know, uh, here's how I feel right now. It takes too much energy to laugh, you know, and something like that. But that's a very 
real feeling where it's just, I mean, it could be months without genuinely laughing about something just because like it's too exhausting to do it. And I don't have, I don't know. It's, it's almost like, um, it's like everything just gets tuned down to a level where I can do like the bare minimum of interactions. And that's about it. How long have you been aware or at what point were you aware that this was part of your life? I, you know, honestly, uh, I think it would have been like my late twenties that I really was like, Oh, okay. So this is like something that keeps coming up for me. It's not just, I'm around this person or that person or this job or whatever. Like this is a recurring theme uh, and a recurring feeling that I'm very familiar with throughout most of my life. So I think I really started to pay more attention to it maybe in my late twenties. And before then I was just like, man, I just feel bad again. Or, oh man. Did you ever get an actual diagnosis from a doctor? Yes. I am clinically depressed. (laughs) Yeah. Not questioning, but just sort of like at what point in realizing it, did you go, oh, maybe I should go get checked out? And Well, you know, I've been in therapy for the last five years or so. And, and that's actually where uh, I did get the diagnosis. But yeah, I don't know. But before that, it was just kind of like trying to get through everything all by myself. I will say therapy has done wonders, mainly for giving me just kind of more tools to reel me back in when I'm feeling overwhelmed from depression and like it's never going to get better and everything's awful and terrible. We've had some very interesting conversations on the podcast about therapy and people who are for it, against it, and maybe over time realize that it's valuable. But I think, you know, I think it's one of those things personally that everyone can benefit from it. I think so. I have been saying for the past almost two years that the government should be giving everyone free therapy right about now. Because I tell you, emotionally, I think people are just spent. You know, every day feels like a crisis. And I think people like... A lot of people must be having PTSD from things that are happening uh, without getting too political or anything. But yeah, for me personally, I know myself before therapy and I see myself after and since. And, you know, it has only done good things for me. It's so positive. How did you find the person that you're working with? Well, I did that through trial and error. I had uh, a few people I tried out um, just to see how I felt with them, if I felt like opening up. And, and that's a huge thing I would tell people, too, because I've had friends who are like, yeah, I went. I didn't like the person. Like, and well, then they're done. And then that's it. Yeah, and they're over Well, it. there's more than one therapist out there, honestly. And again, like I, my first three experiences, you know, I remember I went to one therapist and was talking about something that was upsetting for me and I was crying and they listened and, and then at the end of me talking for about half an hour, they were like, well, you know, you seem really sad about this. What gave it away? Oh my God. The part where I was crying or I, we're done here. (laughs) So that, you know, so the person that I go to now, I actually found them online and I guess you'd say vibed it out and (laughs) was just like, yeah, I like this photo. Cool went like the environment that I was in. Um, the first session was really great. We didn't have any huge epiphanies or revelations, but most importantly, I felt comfortable opening up and letting myself be vulnerable, you it's know, huge. and the, oh my God, it's gigantic and understanding this is really a safe space for me. And now I, you know, I don't feel weird at all saying like, I genuinely look forward to my therapy session every week. I, I know really a lot of do. people that feel that way. Yeah. It's just like checking in, um, a little review of what might be going through my mind right now whatever. It's just a place to go where I feel safe, you know, like getting a little tune up every week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also, you know, for people that are looking to get into this, managing your expectations and knowing what are you looking to achieve and getting into this. And maybe it's just being open to having a safe place, a comfortable place to go that you feel good and trust this person that you don't have to be filtered in any way. Because I think everyone's filtered to a certain extent, friends, family members, significant others, et cetera, to try to cover, you know, face a face, but this is where like, there should be no hiding. And if you feel like you're going to hide, don't go to therapy. Yeah. And find someone who helps you to feel that you can really just be yourself. I mean, there's absolutely no filter. I think much to the amusement of my therapist sometimes like in our sessions, but I genuinely appreciate that, you know, and that's part of helping me feel like I'm not so, you know, wild in the things that I'm thinking as well is to hear someone calmly and rationally receive what I'm saying and then also offer their insight as well. Not like, oh, whoa, that's so crazy. Right. No judgment. And no. also, I'm a big fan of being able to have a conversation with the person yeah. as opposed to me talking the whole time and them yeah. being like, all right, time's up. It's like, 
oh shit, you didn't even give me any feedback yeah. here. Like I want to have a dialogue. Exactly. That's really valuable. Um, so let's talk a little bit. You mentioned cancer. You were diagnosed at 31. Yeah. Diagnosed at 31. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, so whatever you're willing to share everything. No, (laughs) I I know it sounds so crazy, but I, I really enjoy sharing about that experience in my life. It was life changing. I was hoping I didn't force you to come here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and when our time's up here today, (laughs) no. Uh, so I have a history of cancer, breast cancer in my family. So, you know, I was pretty good at staying on top of my monthly checkups. And one night I was just hanging out in my apartment and was like, oh, I'll just do a quick little checkup, see how it's going. And I was like, ho, ho, what is this? And, you know, it really was exactly like they say. I felt a, a very distinct lump in my breast. And I was like, okay, this is something I should get checked out. Had you been regularly checking as an adult just because you told you? Okay. Just, you know, to be safe and aware, responsible, I feel, you know, and thank goodness, uh, because cancer is a sneaky motherfucker. And, you know, like I often think about that by the time that I found a lump in my breast, I mean, I already had a tumor growing. So it's like, it's, it's silent, it's deadly. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being proactive about your own health. It's empowering. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I'm an artist and I had no insurance whatsoever. So I went to Planned Parenthood and yeah, where wouldn't even think to tell someone to go there. So many people would not, but I went to see a nurse practitioner. It's just where I had gone since like high school, you know, and they do lots of things there as we know. And the nurse practitioner there was right on, uh, you know, she was super calm and told me an imaging place I could go to, first of all, uh, to get this looked at. And then, you know, said if it turned out to be something, she recommended I go uptown to a place called the Ralph Lauren Center. I was like, what? <laughs> that's fancy. And I was like, I'm so not passionate. I don't know. Uh, it did sound fancy, but it's, it's a wonderful uh, center in Harlem that serves their community in just the most incredible way. And I think they're awesome. But so it did turn out to be something. So I did go up there and they were great. And I had a biopsy done, which, you know, everyone's like, nothing. What's interesting to me is the moment I found a lump, my brain was like, okay, go. You have cancer. And and I don't mean that in a morbid way. I just intuitively felt that this is what was happening. And at the time, you know, I wasn't like freaked out about it, whatever. I was like, okay, what do I need to do to keep going here. You went into action mode. Yeah, exactly. So then I remember I got the call to come in for the results. And that's when I found out I had cancer. Did you know that already in your head? Oh, yeah. You were I 100% knew I was going in to hear that I had cancer, you know, and bless the team there. They have a great program at Ralph Lauren called the patient navigator program. And so this woman named Gloria was with me through like my whole journey and she was in the room when I was diagnosed, which was awesome to have someone who truly cared. You know, uh, the doctor who diagnosed me was deeply upset that he had to tell me, he's like, you know, in my heart, I did not think I'd be telling you this. Wow. You don't hear that that often. I hate to say. No, you don't. And I think they were shocked because I was 31, which is young to be getting breast cancer. And like, so yeah, so that was that. And a week after being diagnosed, I had my first surgery. Uh, a yeah. week after? Yeah. We had to really like boom, boom, boom. It happened so fast. So a week after I had my first surgery, and then a month after that, I had to have a second surgery. Those were both lumpectomies because my margins didn't clear. So it spread a little further than we thought. Oddly, I was cool with the first surgery, not cool with the second. What does that mean? Meaning the first one, um, <laughs> the it's a man named Dr. Ramcharan, who was the surgeon for the first one. And he was like just in awe because all the way to, you know, on the stretcher or whatever, back to the operating room, I was cracking jokes. And I was like, I've been practicing counting down. I'm going to be the first person who can count down all the way before the anesthesia hit. And I was like, 10. <laughs> and, out. and it was just like this whole you were making of- light of the situation it's how you yeah, were handling it and humor gets me through a lot yeah. that, you know like you know so so that was that the second one I it just hit home a little bit more like hmm this is very serious obviously plus you know I had just had my breast operated on and was still getting used to the way that it looked and taking these little tentative peeks under my bandages to start to wrap my head around that um 
And I just wasn't ready for them to go back in and cut it open again. But yet, you know, it's kind of something we had to do. So that happened. Then I had a very emotional period uh, after my second surgery, before my chemo, where the question was posed, you know, what about kids? Which is something I've never wanted for myself in my life, genuinely. But when you're in that moment, it's like, oh my God, wait, what if, what if future me does really want kids and what do I do right now? So I had a really tiny window of time. I'm talking like two weeks, maybe yeah. max to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. Um, might have been just like three months, but I had to, uh, I ended up applying for this grant uh, through the Livestrong Foundation to go and do the, um, to have an egg removal, egg retrieval surgery, sorry. That was really weird and emotional because, you know, I was sat in a room with people who were trying to get pregnant and I knew I would be like freezing my eggs, but I don't know. Am I going to ever use these? Yeah. Also at the time, uh, to be totally honest, I was in a relationship that I think in my heart I knew I really wanted and emotionally needed to get out of and that this definitely was not someone I would be procreating with. And so instead of freezing a fertilized egg, I froze just mine, which was like a whole other level of like, oh my God, what's going on in my life right now? And not really knowing what you wanted with any of this, but being... But trying to look out for me in the future, if something changed, it hasn't for the record. Um, I still feel exactly the same, but I am glad I did that. Why? I'm glad I did it because I had no idea, you know, if my feelings were going to change now or here I am. So I'm 40 now and... I don't know. I I didn't know. Like, what if after that guy that I was with, what if I met someone incredible? And I was just like, I need a baby. And then that happened. It didn't, you know. But you met someone incredible. I did meet someone. Inc- <laughs> I met someone incredible. But I still don't want to have a baby. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's why I felt cool doing it then. So that was that. So I did the egg retrieval. Then I started chemo, which was just... Well, for what period of time is all ooh, of this? It's like a year and a half of life, you know? Um, and honestly, it's... <laughs> I know it sounds so weird, but it's one of the best times in my life because it completely rearranged all my priorities, uh, the people in my life that were important, the things that were important, how much bullshit I would or would not take anymore officially. I, it was a really good thing overall. It actually wasn't until I would say like uh, maybe a year out from treatment ending that I felt like everything kind of hit me. At the time, I had thought I was going to maybe do a book about my experience or whatever. Um, and I, was, I went back through my computer and was gathering images because I had a blog, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about, which I kept the whole time documenting everything. So I was going back to look for photos and things that might be good and, you know, Weirdly, I started looking through them and then it hit me. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, you know, looking at some of the images of me bald and when I was like puffy from steroids and then all, you know, the weight that I lost and this and that. And that's when it all kind of sunk in because before I was so focused and had tunnel vision on just getting through it and what do I need to do each day to get through this that that's it. That's all my brain had room or time for. And that was it. You didn't allow yourself to truly process what you were going through. I don't even know if it's that I didn't allow myself. I just think the situation didn't allow for it, where it was just like, here's today's thing, da 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 and, you know, there you go. So did the chemo. I consider myself fortunate. I had four rounds of chemo. You know, I have uh, people in my life who have gone through cancer, who are going through cancer now, and, you know, they have to have like eight, nine rounds of some seriously terrible drugs, uh, which also save your life. But, you know, it's still brutal, nevertheless. So I had my first round of chemo. And I was told that, you know, it the cycle is kind of like day one, you're like, hmm, okay, day two, maybe you feel a little funky, and then forget it, like the rest of the week. And then it obviously accumulates in your system over time, where each round gets a little more gross feeling, which is very true. So did the chemo, all my hair came out, eyelashes, eyebrows. She has long, flowy, gorgeous, blonde hair. <laughs> and wow. now it's attached to my scalp. <laughs> I give it a yoink every now and then just to see. I used to, I did this gross thing. Like, and it came out quick though. I mean, it was like a day and a half. I wow. gotta tell you, like when it came out, it came out. What they don't tell you, and I don't know if it's true for everyone universally, but in my case, um, 
I actually kind of knew it had begun because my I woke up and my scalp was very sore, like I had an awful sunburn or something like that. And then I was just like, oh, crap. And it started to come out. And I remember being in the car uh, going uptown with this man whom I had gone in to see for a possible like wig situation. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to need one, whatever. And when it started coming out, I was like, I'm sick of it. I'm know? ready for yeah, that. Like, hey, hey. So, some people can rock the bald head. And I think they look so cool. And I truly admire them. Um, I also believe, though, it's 100% about what you're comfortable with at the time, like, Lord knows you're going through enough. Don't let anybody judge you. If you want to put a wig on and that's how you feel comfortable, great. And that's how I felt comfortable. But I remember going uptown in the taxi with my then boyfriend and, you know, was obviously distraught about what's happening and to try and make a joke, oh, it wasn't funny. It's kind of funny. It's like, hey, you want to see something weird? Like, oh, sure. And I remember I twirled a piece of my hair around my finger. I'm talking like a chunk of my hair on my finger and I went, boink, and I just pulled it right out of my scalp. It was, it was just like, it was the most surreal experience ever, you know, and like talk about super humbling. It's in like one and a half days you have hair. I mean, my hair was as long as it is right now, which is pretty long to bald. And this is where cancer, especially breast cancer is a beast because it just really goes after everything that makes you feel quote unquote feminine, you know, like, oh, I had this hair, my breasts. Uh, eventually, you know, my ovaries, like everything. So that's when it really was like, oh my God, this is happening. Like I have cancer. Here's where we're at right now. Wow. So you started talking about the blog and the concept of writing a book. So I know you wrote this blog and the intention was more for your friends and family, but then you discovered (laughs) that random people were reading. Tell me about that. Okay. So the blog came about the day I was diagnosed. I went in and at first the doctor was saying this and that about the results. And it was like in a movie where, you know, people are muted and talking in the background. And I was just kind of in a zone in my head. Yeah. And I remember so distinctly my thoughts at the time were, ooh, this sucks. Wait, cancer? Wait, ooh, cancer, you suck. I'm sorry, blood. Wait, what did he just say? And I remember <laughs> I tuned back in because I heard the word chemo. I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, this will be a part of your treatment. I was like, oh, my God. But so then the first thing I did, weirdly enough, or not, you know, was I just like, it's kind of an Amy thing to do. Like, okay, this is where we're at. Let's go. And I went home and I obviously made some phone calls to people I cared about in my life. Um, But then I sat down and was like, all right, I'm going to write about this. Why? What was the intention behind that? First, the intention was because it was clear that it would be very overwhelming to give all my well-meaning friends and family updates every day about what was very hard for me to process emotionally. Um, And while I definitely wanted to share with them what was happening, and I was so grateful to have people that cared for me and kept checking in on me, sometimes it was hard enough to process things all on my own without having to rehash them like four, five, six times, because it's not always the easiest thing to talk about. So I just kind of sent out a mass email to my three friends and (laughs) was just like, hey, I'm starting this blog. You can check in on it every day. I'm going to be very diligent about coming here and keeping you all posted with what's going on. And it was one of the healthiest, smartest decisions I could possibly have made for myself. Then it became clear from people who were writing me. I noticed that people who were not my friends and family were like, wow, this is great. I'm so happy I found you. This is a cancer pod. Are you in the right place? Like, awesome. Thank you. Were they people going through cancer? No. The first people that started following me were not going through cancer. They just, I suppose, liked what I was writing or the way I was writing it. So then I thought, you know, here's the thing about cancer. We all know it in our lives, whether we've had it personally or like everyone knows somebody who has gone through this at some point. I wanted to show people that while it's one thing to kind of know that cancer sucks, obviously it does, um, it's quite different when you kind of see what's happening and the evolution of a disease in a way. And for me, I thought it would be important to just document it, not just with the written word, but visually as well, which is why I made a choice to like show myself how to give myself injections and, you know, warning people about it. I videoed my bone marrow biopsy, which was crazy, you know, like things like that, because it, I feel that 
we can hear people talk about situations that were devastating to them, and we do process it on a, a big level, I hope, <laughs> for most of us. But it is quite different when you have an image to go along with something. So that's the reason I made that choice. And then the next thing I knew, I just had this cool community of really supportive strangers. Who It's a testament, honestly, to the good side of social media and the internet, because it was people that really made my whole experience so much better because I knew I could come and post about a very hard day I had had. And there were people that would just lift me up. And they really did. And then I met people, you know, um, whom I'm still in touch with today. And we all kind of were had our respective cancer blogs, but we all met because we started treatment at the same time for all our different cancers. Uh, another woman I met had breast cancer, different than mine, and different chemo cocktail and all that. Um, another had a lymphoma, and I can't remember the name of my other but it was just far out because we could all make our kind of sick cancer jokes about treatment and, you know, how we were feeling and, and all of that. And so I had many different little communities happening online, all because of that blog. And that I, your intention was for you to share for yeah, your friends and your family. little updates for friends and family. And it turned into something that, in fact, I just had, and I'm the worst at messaging, so I'm sorry if she hears this. But <laughs> I saw, I think yesterday, a girl wrote me on Instagram and said, Oh, you know, I followed your Tumblr uh, about cancer, you know, seven years ago, whatever, and was wondering where you were, what happened, and here you are, great. And, you know, and I thought that was so cool. And there are people that are now over there on Instagram who were my earliest followers and one that I, I'm genuinely great friends with now. And it's just so awesome. Yeah. It's amazing to have that online support. And as you said, for social media to be used in a good way yes. to support you to probably help other people, whether you know that or not. Yeah. Were there other blogs that you were following or things that you were staying on to understand other people's journeys? Well, I was following the, the group of ladies, you know, who each had their uh, cancer blogs. Like I certainly checked in every day with them just for moral support. We were all good at, at staying in touch. But other than that, no, I was still just kind of living life and being in the city with cancer. And honestly, like there were, I remember after my first round, I really needed to go get food, for example. And my boyfriend at the time came over and, you know, I was living on Second Avenue. And I wanted to just walk over to Whole Foods, which was only like eight blocks from me. But it felt like it took half a day. And I had to, you know, walk up four flights of stairs, which normally is nothing, whatever. But woo, by the time I got home with the groceries, which I insisted on carrying because, you know, like I had to not get in this mode where it's like, no, I can't do this. Um, I was pretty much spent at that time. But yeah, it's just, uh, it was just like navigating the day to day of living in a city, but living with an illness like that. Yeah. I think a lot of people who have been on the podcast or listening to the podcast can relate to that stuff. I remember having surgery six years ago and walking from my parents' apartment to Madison Square Park, yeah. which was like six blocks. Yeah. And I can picture getting to the bench in Madison Square Park and just being like, You're oh, done. my God, I've been able to walk like 80 blocks in my life and not even think yeah. about it. This is five blocks. And this is so scary. And you realize over time in both of our you know situations that you get through that. Yeah. But it's crazy because there are people that live with that on a daily basis. On a daily basis. I have a friend, he's actually one of my earliest followers on there who lives with fibromyalgia and it's like, talk about <laughs> so intense, unseen. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine being in a city like this and living with something like that because outwardly, which is the whole point of your podcast, you know, everyone would look at him and be like, what? You're fine. You're totally fine. You would have no have idea. No idea the pain that he's going through. So yeah, yeah, it's huge. So along with the blog that you were keeping, you also wrote a film. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that came about in an interesting way. I, I wrote that film with a guy named Matt Creed, who directed it, and it was a fantastic experience. Matt. Long story short, what I didn't know is I had worked with Matt's parents in another life when I was a hairstylist and I know I didn't even brush my own hair like what was I doing <laughs> oh god um but then I had like transitioned into like the development of hair products da, 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 da. it was actually a terrible period of my life but uh two of the people that were on this kind of like design team were his parents 
And then weirdly, like we had connected because I kept seeing him in this coffee shop all the time. And then one day he was like, oh, hey, you know, I was reading your blog and I had some questions about, blah, blah. but he had like clearly really read my blog and was paying very close attention to what I was going through, which of course made me want to open up because I wasn't like, oh, cool. I saw you in a blog. No, he genuinely I mean, he cared. had like really specific questions about, you know, my treatment or what was this like? What was that like? So then we met up at one point and he's like, how would you feel about writing like maybe a little short film? And I would direct it. Then by the time we sat down, we had written a feature and then we filmed the feature and neither of us, I mean, it was his first time directing a feature film. I'm in awe of him to this day. It's like taking the helm of a gigantic ship. And I just so admire him for, for jumping in there the way that he did. Plus I really am indebted to him for the care that he took with my story. Uh, the film is called Lily, and Matt really wanted to take on uh, writing. We say it's loosely based on my life. It's really <laughs> based on your life. So close, yeah. Um, it's about you know. Well, the long story short is it's about a young woman who has just finished up for treatment for cancer and is wondering what now. Because for me, that was the part of my whole experience with cancer that I felt was the least talked about in kind of cancer circles was actually the hardest part for me was reintegrating back into a quote normal life because what the heck is normal after that for starters I don't know I had to refigure out who I was and what did I even want to do like here I am I just got through this insane you know journey experience whatever you want to call it and that was the part where I felt uh, the most alone strangely you know you go from having this not that all my friends disappeared, they didn't, but it's kind of like, all right, you did it. All right, now the process begins and moving on. But you go from, I had just come out of, uh, I was finishing radiation treatment as we were writing. So I actually finished my treatment one day and then went to meet with Matt to keep writing. Um, and so, you know, you have like all your days regimented and you see, you know, this doctor at this time and this doctor at this time. And, you know, you got your little patients that you normally see like hanging while we're all waiting and you go from having all of these people around you to nobody. And that's just it. And that was really a difficult transition for me. Um, so that's what the film is about. Uh, it's not a particularly happy film. It's just like a very honest, sweet little film. And I thought that Matt did the most wonderful job with caring about my experience and putting it out there in a very realistic way. Then, to both of our great surprise, uh, it premiered at Tribeca, which was just nutso because... <laughs> Who are you to have this film? Yeah, and, and I'm the worst. I think Matt caught me actually trying to sneak out of our screening because I just was like, like at the thought of talking to people or what I'm not. Because you were doing the Q&A at the end or oh, something. Yeah. yeah. And also just the thought of seeing myself on screen like that. Like it was so weird because I was. Oh, you acted in oh, it. Oh, yeah. I don't I, think I got that. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm in the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, so where oh, yeah. can people see this? You can see it on iTunes now. Amazing. It's still there. Yeah. I'm very proud of that film. Um, so when really, did it screen at Tribeca? Oh, gosh. I want to say that was like maybe five years ago. I'm the worst with time. I don't know. I would That, that feels right. <laughs> no, at least six years ago now. I think it's at least six years ago. And then we did like we did, you know, Nantucket Film Festival and this and that. Then we went overseas to Deauville and did the film festival there. And it was, I'm just, honestly, I'm really grateful for such a remarkable experience. And for me at the time, it was like, there you go. Like, that's how we close the chapter on cancer is you chronicle it this whole time, make a freaking film about it, and then put that book on the shelf, like done. <laughs> so, it was fantastic. I know it sounds so weird to, to be so upbeat about it, but I just like, I feel I'm at a point now where I can be super proud of myself for how I handled all of that and handled myself through it all. And I am like, my God, it's, it's go me seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Go Matt, honestly, I forever say go Matt because he just created a lovely little film. It's a very quiet piece, you know, but I think it's honest. My favorite part was when we would have screenings of it. Every single screening I had uh, people who either had cancer or had just finished treatment that would come up and talk to me and they all said that they were really glad that we 
talked about this because it had been equally as hard for them to make that transition back into whatever normalcy was supposed to be. So that and there's no good. such thing as like what normalcy no, should be. No, it changes all the time, no matter if you have an illness or not. You know, like I always life. talk about after having surgery years ago, all my friends coming over and calling and texting and sending flowers and food, and then like a week later, all gone. Yeah. Like, not that they stopped caring, but there's no manual. I talk about this on the yeah. podcast all the time. There's no manual on how to go through this as a caregiver, as a friend, no. as a significant other. And that's an important piece of it as well, is that I noticed when I had cancer, how really genuinely hard it was for my friends and family and how they were struggling. I think of my poor mom, because she was in Tallahassee, you know, and at one point she asked, did I want to come home and just go through everything there? And I said, no, because honestly, if I go home, I'll really feel sick. Here, I have friends, I have like work that I was doing, da, 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 like things that needed to be done in addition to all you of my You didn't want to stop stuff. your life. Exactly. And I really would have if I did that. But I could see how hard it was for her to have me so far away and to feel like there's just nothing she could do to make my pain feel any better or... Yeah, it was difficult. Also, my grandmother died um, when I was going through chemo. So that was awful on so many levels. I love my grandmother so much. Uh, I had to fly home with needles, you know, so that I could shoot myself up, uh, like to help my immune system. Because after my first round of chemo, I was actually hospitalized because I had like 104 fever. My immune system was like nothing, zero white blood cells. So you have to go basically be isolated so no one could contaminate you or whatever and so that's why I had to travel like with things to make sure that my immune system didn't get messed up while I'm going to her funeral and then and it was just so far out but I remember specifically getting back to your point about how there is no manual for anything I had a friend at the time who called and she had had like a sad you know moment with her then boyfriend um we were just talking about it and she was upset and she cried and she was like, I can't believe I'm, you know, calling you and talking about this and you have cancer. And I feel the same now as I did then. I was like, yeah, okay, but this is really real for you. And you're really upset about this. It's not like any more or less important right now. Yeah. Like your feelings are hurt. You're sad and we are friends and this is how it works. Like you, you don't have to put a pause on bad things in your life just to talk to me because something or hold bad. back on anything. Yeah. Like just, tell me what's going on. You know, that's part of kind of keeping things normal also. Absolutely. So you talked about putting this film out there into the world and Mm -hmm. doing this tour of festivals, which is incredible, uh, was sort of like closing the door. Yeah. But you also, I know in a interview, talked about how your oncologist said that you could think about cancer kind of like a chronic disease and it's always going to be a part of your life. Do you still feel that way? I do. And part of the reason why is I should say that before I got chemo, um, I did genetic testing to see like many people get cancer and it's just horrible. I, I don't, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know, but really bad luck, you know, apropos of nothing, it seems. Um, some people have a genetic predisposition, which as it turned out, I did. And so I have the BRCA2 gene, which is, uh, you know, there's a BRCA1 and BRCA2, which is directly linked to breast cancer. So in that sense, it's something that I just kind of live with. So what that means is, you know, I have, I think it's like an eight out of 10 chance of getting uh, one of like six or seven other cancers at some point, you know, um, it just means we have to be a little more diligent with checking up on things. Uh, It's kind of like a fine line of not having cancer or having had cancer be my identity. But at the same time, I try and tell people it's kind of hard for an experience like that not to be something that you always carry with you. Because of course, in the back of my mind is always like, well, what would happen if it came back? And, you know, now I'm at a point where I'm supposed to be thinking about having my ovaries removed, which is another head trip, you know, but that's because thanks to this gene, uh, every year after, you know, starting at 40, and then from there on out, like your chances of getting ovarian cancer increase. And, I'm sure lots Yay, of people. 40. Yippee! This is so much fun. So I feel I'm sure there are people that would hear that and be like, well, why don't you just do it? And I've actually had people say that to me. That's something I take a lot of issue with. This I could go on about. I had people when I was uh, you know, like there was talk for a long time about me having a double mastectomy. 
which my oncologist, for the record, strongly recommended. I have not done that. Um, it's a choice I've made. It's a choice I am fine with. But I had, you know, a number of people that meant well that wrote, and they're like, I don't know, if it were me, I would just like go ahead and chop them off, or I would do this and that. Same if way it were I, me. If it were me, would you? Would you really? You really can't say that because you just don't know. It's the same thing. Whenever you know my hair was coming out, so many, people, I would just shave it. Would you? And and then even if you would, great. And I think that's awesome. But. You cannot project what you would do onto somebody, especially with something like cancer. Absolutely. You cannot. So, yeah. yeah. So wild. Yeah. So what does taking care of your health mean these days? Now, these days, taking care of my health is seeing my oncologist regularly, making sure that I stay on top of everything. Um, you know, I'm, like, hyper aware of changes in my body or, you know, the way that I feel. So it's just being aware of that. The crazy thing about when I was diagnosed was that I was probably healthier then. And I, I was doing yoga seven days a week. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Um, I eat really well. Except when I don't. <laughs> <laughs> balance. Hey, balance. Man, yeah, whatever. Um, but I was just super duper healthy at the time and pretty much still the same now. So really, there wasn't too much that I, you know, needed to, to change. I've tried to learn more about eating locally and seasonally and obviously organic if I can. And not. Um, but beyond that, there I didn't have to, like, give up smoking or anything like that. So it was just kind of like getting back to some sort of a semblance of a normal, healthy life again. Right. And so what role does art play in your life as it relates to depression, to cancer, to health overall and your well-being? It's everything. It's absolutely everything in my life. And I think it always has been. In relation to depression in particular, it's a lifeline. It's like maybe the only thing, it, not the only thing, it's the only means I have during those times of communicating accurately what I'm feeling with other people. Um, it's also kind of the one tiny little light when I'm depressed that first of all, even though I feel the way that I feel in those in those times, it's it's something good to focus on that I could still create anything at all. Um, that always helps me. And also it's just a way to very purely channel my feelings. I just think it's the most healthy and wonderful outlet to have. For the last year or so, it's been coming out in painting, which I'm a complete novice at. Uh, however, all I know is it feels right. And it's been cool because it's just like everything comes out in color and texture and composition. And it helps my mind to feel a bit more settled. It's like when there's a situation like depression that I maybe can't control the duration of or other aspects of it, I have my art and I can sit down and I can channel it into something. It's so important to have that outlet, whatever it is. I think everyone handles it differently. Yeah. I had someone on the podcast, a friend of mine, Tiffany, who is going through breast cancer and chemo right now at 35. And she does like a dance in her apartment and post on Instagram before she goes. <laughs> and there's just this, like, let's keep the energy up. Yeah. As you said, not being defined by it and keeping some normalcy in your life. And for her, she also keeps a blog. So it's just Great. keeping things up that, like, I live a regular life. I still run my business. Yeah. I am not 100% my illness. However, and this is something. I had someone write me at one point when I had my blog, like, I don't get it. Why are you so upbeat? Like, why are you this and that like that's not how I feel with my cancer which okay that's there's no one you know, size like, fits all yeah with and I understand having cancer and being like this fucking sucks because it does and I totally had those days my thing was um to not like let yourself have those moments where fuck yeah you can feel sorry for yourself sometimes you have cancer it's awful it's a terrible disease to have you know I had many a moments where I broke down and I cried. But the thing is just to not linger there for longer than you need to, you know, because that's when I think there's the added danger of just getting sucked into a horrible place. Um, depression, it's not, you know, that's not really in my control. That's another like misnomer that people have. Where it's like, well, you know, just don't think about things. Well, yeah. Oh, would that it were that easy. Well, you know, yeah. if only I could just, there's no happy thought in the world. I can think of 
all the good things I have in my life when I'm depressed. But the thing is, I don't feel anything about them. You know, I can recognize like, gee, you're very lucky to have someone who loves you and to love someone and have your friends and family of a roof over your Yes, I can take stock of all the good in my life. But, and this sometimes contributes to the depression, I can't feel any good from it because I can't feel anything in those moments. I just don't feel a thing. I'm totally numb. And you have to just allow yourself to be in that. And no one can tell you there's a good or bad or right or wrong way of handling it. You just have to be, you know, when I say this to people, I wish that society as a whole, especially right now, politically, um, we all need to get okay with being uncomfortable and hearing about things that make us uncomfortable and not trying to sugarcoat life. We really need to get to a point where we can receive another person's experience that makes us deeply uncomfortable and not make it about us, but just genuinely hearing them out, trying to understand it, maybe offer help if you can. But like, I don't think it does anyone any good to not be uncomfortable or to not go through some heavy shit in your life. How else are you supposed to grow? Yeah, I mean, I think there's people that are living on the surface and not allowing themselves to feel those things, assuming like, oh, good, let's just suppress these emotions. I won't feel them ever. Yeah, you cannot do that. So actually, that's a good point. You brought up Planned Parenthood at the beginning. And I know that you're very politically involved and that your art takes a political spin at times. Oh, yeah. And on Instagram, you're very public about politics and women's rights and stuff. Talk a little bit about your experience with all of that. And what do you think is valuable as it relates to the healthcare world and what people should be knowledgeable about? Well, what I'm most passionate about as far as health goes, it, well, first of all, is everyone having the access to the health care that they need. It's just insane to me to think that anyone would ever consider uh, health care to be up for any kind of debate or something that could be taken away from people, made unavailable or unaffordable. Like, these are people's lives. And, you know, again, this is why all these congressmen and women who they hear stories from their constituents about if you take away my health care, this is going to happen to my son or daughter. Like they need to really understand. They might just see that person as one of the people they're quote serving or one of their constituents. This is a person whose life is very real and very significant to them, has people that love them. Like, you know, we all are entitled to get the care that we need. So I'm passionate about that politically and definitely get uh, upset when I hear that anyone is tampering with Medicaid or anything like that. Uh, It's just it's just completely unfair. It really is. It really is. Beyond that, I'm very passionate about a woman's right to her own bodily autonomy and not having the government have a say in what we can or cannot do with our own bodies, because I think that's ludicrous. Plain and simple. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's really as simple as that. It really is. I don't believe that the government should have a right to dictate the course that my, because people have to to dig that it's just not like, Oh, um, this little decision that someone's making in a moment, if we're talking about what I think we're talking about here, um, it's not a little decision, first of all. And so that's a fallacy to say, like, oh, whatever. It's really not whatever. Also, it's not just that moment. It could be the rest of somebody's life. It's also the rest of this other little person's life. You know, so there are a lot of ramifications here. Um, and I just really don't believe that it is the place of the government or a man to step in and say, no, you cannot do this. You'll go to jail if you do this. Meanwhile, what do we do to men who don't want babies? Or I mean, seriously, it's like what? It, it just makes no sense to me. No sense whatsoever. It's not rational. Yeah. That's for sure. And this thing with trying to continually attack and attempt to defund Planned Parenthood, I think is insane. Um, Look at what it did for you. Oh, my God. I mean, that's one example of millions, you know. And also, I am more fortunate than the vast majority of people that are going to be going there. Attacking Planned Parenthood, you're attacking minorities, specifically, who are underserved in their communities. You are going to endanger their lives. I mean, this is real. Whether people think that women are being melodramatic or not, when we talk about this, yes, you are endangering the lives of women, specifically minority women, if you take away places like Planned Parenthood that do not just do abortion. You know, it's like there are so many other things that happen there that people, again, who cannot afford health care can go there and have these services done. I was able to talk to a nurse practitioner about a lump in my breast, and then that kicked off me 
getting all the care that I needed. But imagine if you didn't have the knowledge to go to Planned Parenthood or the funds to go elsewhere. What would you do? What would you do? I don't even know. I genuinely don't know. Ignore it for as long as you could, probably. I'm sure there are people that have to do that with many different illnesses. And that's a terrible situation to be in. Because, I mean, with something like cancer, by the time you find it, it can be too late. Absolutely. It's people's lives. You sh- this should be completely off the table politically. This there are so like, many bigger uh, yeah, issues yeah, like, that really like should that. be considered. Meanwhile, this the is. Environment. I mean, <laughs> we are not going there. Hell, yeah. <laughs> um, this was really amazing. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about everything that you've been through, being an open book, and obviously using your art and your voice to share your experiences. Where can people find you, your previous blog, your new blog, your soon-to-launch website? Where can people find you? Well, I'm really active on Instagram. I'm called Woodstockings over there. Uh, so I just made my profile private. Oh. I, just, I don't know. I just felt like, eh, why not? Um, so anyways, I'm still there. She it's may been, accept you. Yeah, I... I'm nice, I promise you. If, if you're nice too, I will accept you. She definitely gets into political rants on there. Yeah, just be aware of that also. I've had so many stinky messages over the last couple of years like, hey, I like it when you just posted pictures and you're not nice and then and then. It's like, oh, stop it. This is like, part of who I am and the voice yeah, that I Yeah, and basically what you're saying is you liked me before I started talking <laughs> or before it was clear that I had a brain. I don't know. I'm sorry that's offensive to you. Surprise! Uh, so yeah, I'm on... Instagram as Woodstockings. Uh, I also have my photography Instagram, which is called If They Only Had Wings. It's all one word. My blog is still floating out there somewhere. It's called Boo Cancer You Suck. <laughs> that says it all. Love it. Um, yeah. And then the other blog, uh, I think I called it 10,000 Words in a Cardboard Box. I'm pretty sure. I've only posted two things on it. We'll link know? it in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Yeah. And thank you again for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.